Well, let me, uh, let me say this. If you've never had that moment like Corey and Bruce have talked about where it's that definitive place in your life where you would say, I, I surrendered my heart and my life and my thinking to Jesus. I recognize that God and I were at odds with each other. Some decisions I've made, some choices I've made along the way that uh, we're just not, we're not on the same page together. And you hear something like Corey and Bruce talk about where there is that decision point of saying, I, I'm done with myself. The whole self-saving effort is just, I'm finished with it. And you uh, have never given your heart to Jesus in that way. And then let him lead your life and be the best friend and best guide you've ever had. What are you waiting for? <laughs> what do you need to know? What do you need to understand to step into that and kind of just give up on the path you've had till now and go, yes, Jesus, I I'm going to take this risk with you and say yes to you. You, you could do that right now. I can't think of a reason why you'd wait. I really can't. For those of us that have experienced that, and we hear the story that Corey and Bruce talk about, we go, yeah, that's, that was our story too. In different way, different circumstances, but from death to life. Or maybe you've never gone public with that. You know that's your reality, and you know that you've said yes to him, and Jesus is central in your life, and you love living with him and for him, but you've never done that. You've never like, gone public and said, I am staking my flag for Jesus. Or maybe you were baptized as a youngster and your parents meant so well with that, and yet it wasn't your choice. Uh, this gets filled up whenever it's needed. And so if you are interested in saying yes or being baptized, would you talk to me or Butch or one of the people up here? We'll get you the information of what you need to know about that, but I can't think of a reason why you wouldn't consider that. There are hesitations sometimes about saying yes to Jesus, and it's interesting, the passage that we're looking at today from the uh, book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, the eyewitness story of Mark as recorded by Peter, which we've been thinking about the last many, many months. Jesus actually takes on a subject of, uh, well, straight on, really, of some obstacles and some challenges that some religious leaders in his day had to really saying yes to God and what God had for them and recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, they struggled with that. And it's interesting that that's a passage that we're looking at today. It's a, it's a story, actually more properly a parable, if you're familiar with parables and why Jesus uses these. And uh, he uses this story or tells this parable in the last week of his life. Now a little bit of context here for just a second. Uh, we began looking at the eyewitness account that Mark records way back in September. And uh, we have gone through a little over 10 chapters of a 16-chapter account. The first 10 chapters cover about three to three and a half years of Jesus' earthly ministry. And then the next six cover about a week. So we're going to slow walk through this story because there's so much here. It's like Mark and Peter pull the reins on the story of Jesus and go, all of that stuff culminates in the last week. And so whatever Jesus would do, whatever he would say in that last week must be of utmost importance. When time's running out, what you say matters most. And so we want to look carefully at what Jesus says in this story. A little bit of context for the story itself. Pastor Paul 
went through the start of the last week, last weekend. You might recall he talked about Jesus' coronation parade as he comes into Jerusalem for kind of the last time. There's a few days, of course, after that that he does. Uh, that's on a Sunday. A week later, he's going to have been tortured and killed and come back to life again. Uh, so he comes into Jerusalem on a Sunday, on a Monday. He comes back into Jerusalem in the temple courts and he creates chaos. He turns uh, the tables of money changers and people selling sacrificial uh, elements in the, in the temple courtyard. That's on Monday. And now the story we're going to tell today is comes on Tuesday, the day after that. And it appears that Jesus goes back into the city of Jerusalem. He spent the night at, likely at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, you know, dead Lazarus, alive Lazarus, that guy, at their home in Bethany. And uh, Tuesday morning, if this is how it happens, he gets up, he walks down a steep slope into the Kidron Valley, back up the slope into the city of Jerusalem to Mount Zion to the temple court which overlooked all of Jerusalem. It was the highest place. It was the place where the Israelites believed God's presence was there in the temple, in the holiest place of the temple. And this is where Jesus arrives and he gets just, it appears, just gets into the gates of the temple mount itself and the religious leaders who he embarrassed the day before are all over him. They come running up to him and go, okay, so what happened yesterday was not cool. You stepped way across the line, Jesus, and we want to know what, by what authority did you do that? Because we don't think you have authority. We think you're some kind of rebel that's doing this thing on your own. You're, you're creating an insurrection within the people, and that's going to cause problems with the Romans, and they're going to make it difficult for us. So just like stop doing that, and if you like, didn't do that on your own, by whose power did you do it? as if Jesus had not been clear the day before. What he had done, he had clearly and definitively said that he was the Messiah, the one they had waited for. So why are they having such a hard time with Jesus and what he has to say and what he's doing? And Jesus knows this, that they're struggling with something. And he's gonna to try to help them understand it by telling them a story. I got to thinking this week, I was looking, was what, what's it like to be the smartest person in the room all the time? I would never know that, but Jesus knows that. Smartest guy, most creative, talented. He's a subject matter expert on everything. Well, I guess you can do that if you're God, right? So out of his creativity, he tells this parable. Now, Jesus will tell parables in a couple of, in a couple of instances. One, if there's something really hard to understand, he'll often use a story, or if it's hard to accept, he'll use a story. This is one of those hard to accept things that he's going to talk to us about. So here's the story. It's recorded also in Matthew and in Luke, but we're going to read it from Mark. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 1, it says, then Jesus began teaching them with stories. He's just had this encounter with the religious leaders on Tuesday morning, and this is the story he tells. A man planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. The owner then sent another servant, but they insulted him and beat him over the head. The next servant he sent was killed. Hard to imagine. Others he sent were either beaten or killed until there was only one left, his son whom he loved dearly. 
The owner finally sent him, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But the tenant farmer said to one another, here comes the heir to the estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, murdered him, and threw his body out of the vineyard. And Jesus asked a rhetorical question. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do? Jesus asked. I'll tell you. He'll come and he'll kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures, Jesus asked these religious leaders. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. That's taken from Isaiah 5 if you want to read that. It's another story about a vineyard. This is the Lord's doing and it is wonderful to see. Huh. The religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus because they realized that he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away, and they would end up scheming and dreaming and taking his life. So what's going on here that prompts this kind of mysterious story? Well, as I said, Jesus has come back to the temple courtyard to the mount on Tuesday morning after the ruckus that he created on Monday, and the religious leaders are pretty peeved at him. You see, they were convinced that they, not Jesus, had been specially selected by God to be the religious leaders of the country, that they were actually in charge, that they were God's voice to the people, and they were the people's voice back to God. They assumed that they had never been given that task or that job by God, but they assumed it themselves. And the day before, Jesus had defiantly told them that they weren't, in fact, in charge. They weren't in control that Jesus was in control. And that was not gonna go well for them. You see, what they needed to understand that God was not some distant figurehead uninvolved in life, but God was actively involved, just as he is in our day, in our lives. And here's the thing. God wants to be in charge of your and my life. Now, we might reel at that a little bit and go, whoa, 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 that sounds so controlling. Yeah, right. He actually wants to control our lives. But he gives us the freedom not to do that. But this is really what he wants. This is the personal God of creation who is ultimately in charge. Do you believe that? See, this is why it's hard. I I know of people who reject God because they want to have God serve their needs. They want God to provide for them. They don't want him to be in control The ideal situation would be I'm in control and God makes a straight path for me. God's not buying. Not what he's going to do. You see, when you're the God of everything and you're the only God of everything, if you're not in control, you're not God. You're not. And he is in control. But this is sometimes hard for us to think. That means that if God is in charge and in control, we're not. And these religious leaders were not in control. They were not in charge of things. They had their place, maybe, but they weren't ultimately in control. And that meant that if God was in charge, they actually would have to relent and give in to him. They were part of a long line of people who wanted to be in charge or in control instead of God. And this is part of what the story tells us. There's this landowner that keeps sending people to kind of collect rent, right? That's really... uh, symbolic or figurative of prophets and priests and kings and leaders over thousands of years that God invited to come to the nation of Israel and to remind them that God was good, 
that God was right all the time, that he was present all the time, and that the whole world, if they would ever give in to God, would be blessed through them because they would introduce God to the whole world. And some did really well at that. And there are periods of time where that's clearly part of Israel's story, but so many of them failed or failed not because of their own personal failure, but failed because they, the, the nation just wouldn't give in to this reality. As for some, it's hard for us to give in to this notion as well. That is what he meant by the landowner who built a vineyard and set tenants up for success. This is really an amazing thing, this story that Jesus tells. It was so unusual just to hear the story. You would have read it. If you're a contemporary of that day, you would have gone, That's, that would never happen. It just would never happen. You see, here's the deal. His, this landowner invests in planting the grapes for the vines that are going to produce the grapes. He sets up a processing plant and a commercial wine press. He built a stout stone wall to protect the workers and the grapevines. He set up a watchtower as an early warning system of impending danger. And then he rents it out to some workers without any upfront investment, with no equity from these tenants, no financial guarantee. The owner takes all the financial risk that must have made his financial advisor cringe when he did this. This was so ill-advised. He wasn't even collecting monthly rental payments from them. He appears to not secure the deal with any kind of damage waiver. All they have to do is work the vineyard, show up, work the vineyard, and at the end of the season, not even every month, at the end of the season, give part of their profits to the person who did all the work, took all the risk. If they have a bad year, they're going to share the pain with the owner. If they have a really good year, they're going to share the profits with the owner. However, in Jesus' story, sadly, it becomes clear that they didn't just want a fair share of the profits. They wanted to control the whole deal. They wanted to be in charge. So, what do you think of what they did? Does it bug you? Are you going, just opportunists? They're just following what the contract was. It was the owner's foolish idea to do this. He just enticed them into taking over. What do you think of what they would? Let me ask this. Would you rather be in control of your life or have someone else control it? Am I the only one here that prefers to be in control? Uh, Yeah? No, no. Who, left to himself, would in fact prefer to make directional decisions for his life, to handle his welfare for himself and possibly those that he loves, he would very much like to be in control of that and to make it good and make it right, make everything whole and wonderful, and really have final say on so many things in his life. I'm not alone in that. This is a human propensity. Isn't it true that humans have this relentless magnetic pull to be the boss of us? And then when someone comes along and says, you're not the boss of you, I'm the boss of you, we have an allergic reaction to that one. We do. What is it about us? We're actually not a whole lot different than these tenant farmers or the priests, prophets, kings that God wanted to bless the whole world through. We're so much like them. Would you prefer to have control over your health? 
My guess is you'd be healthy all the time. Do you prefer to have control of your money? Be comfortable all the time. Would you like to have control of your time to dictate when you do, what you do, and how you do it? Would you like to have the college of your choice, the job of your choice, the home of your choice? Would you like to be in control of those things? Would you like to control your choice of mate and then control the mate of your choice? (laughs) This is us, right? We have this insatiable appetite to be in control. And this is what the vineyards wanted as well. They felt they needed or were entitled to. And they were in the end willing to go to shocking lengths to stay in control. A series of general beatings, beatings to the head, treating shamefully, and even serial murder, including the incredibly generous owner's only son. We shake our heads at this. We think this is crazy. No one would go to that extreme to prove that they're in control. This is us. Given the choice for our lives, we lean toward high control. I had a friend visit last week, and we had a, a conversation last Friday morning in the coffee shop. We've known each other for 25 years or so. And I said, uh, his name's Fred. I said, so Fred, over the 25 years that you've known me, I'm wondering if you can notice that Jesus has done some transformative work in my world and my life and how I think that he's moved me a little closer to how he thinks. The first thing he said is, you used to be a control freak. He said, I visited one Sunday early on in Copper Hills, and at the end of the service, I said, uh, he had said to me that he had stopped by our uh, connection center, our guest services table, and the first thing I said is, so were they wearing the right shirt? Did they smile? Did they stand out in front of the table or behind the table? Did they approach people or were they approached by people? I want to know all how they did. Because I wanted to be in control of all that. And he says, you know, you have changed a little bit. You're still freakish, but you don't seem to need to be in control quite as much. Why is this hard for us? Because we are certain that no one, no one, has our best interest at heart more than we do. And so we do not, or hard to trust someone else with the big things of our lives. Who would know better than us what we need? Everyone I've ever trusted has let me down or hurt me, you might say. I've learned the hard way that the only way to be trusted, to have trust, is to really handle it myself because I can trust myself. And that God comes along and says that he's ultimately in control in order to experience life to the full as he's designed it, we'll need to relent and give him control of our entire lives and we hold back, we resist, we even fight to stay in charge and in control. This is, this is us. Here's a statement, an axiomatic, self-fulfilling statement. We will not give up control Or better said, we will only give up control of our lives to the degree that we trust the goodwill and trustworthiness of the one that we're giving consideration to giving up control to. And we'll only trust that person to the degree that we know that person. This is why God finally came into our world after priests and prophets and kings and leaders had all not done the job. God comes into our world himself incarnate in Jesus Christ Yes to save us. Yes to die for us. 
But Jesus says himself, he says, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you didn't know who he was, look at me, because I am the exact representation of who God is. Why does he say that? Because he wants to be the boss of us? Not in that way. Because he loves us, and when we love people, we want to influence their lives for good. We want to do what's best for them. Here's the thing. Did you know this? Three simple truths about who God is. He's always good. Call it loving if you want. He's always right. Call it just and holy if you want. He's always present. Would you want someone like that to be in control if you knew that at every single turn, everything that he ever did for you and me, ever, 24-7, he's always going to do it with love. No question. And his love is going to compel whatever he does to do it the right way every single time because that's all he can do. He's right all the time. And he'll never walk away from you. He'll be with you ever. If you, if you absolutely, completely rested in the truth of knowing that person that way, would you want him to be in charge? My guess is we would say yes. So our problem is not primarily faith. Our problem is we don't know him. We don't know how good he is. We don't know how right he is all the time and how present he is with us all the time. If you want to grow in your awareness of his control and have control in your life, get to know him more. Why did he give this book as an instruction manual? Not really. As a revelation manual of his character, of who he is and how he consistently does it. Like he's this, he's this landowner that builds this grand vineyard like just at his own cost and his own expense and then without much of an, an ask he lets people take over the vineyard and farm it and profit from it and without much risk to them and that's still not enough for them why because they didn't know how good the landowner was it's exceptional what jesus talks about his nature and character we need to know him spend time intentionally discovering him being alone with him Every moment of our day, that's how we actually desire him to be in control of our lives. There's a second truth in this passage that is just the reality of God being who God is, and that is the word accountability. We're actually accountable to him. Now, that's not something we really delight in all that much. I'll give you an example. You're driving on the freeway, right? And there's cars weaving in and out, there's uh, cars speeding, there's uh, non-faith-based sign language going on, uh, there's, uh, there's chaos and danger, there's anger, there's frustration, just a typical day on the freeway, right? Till a black and white SUV with blinking blue and red lights shows up, and it all changes. It's a miracle. Suddenly cars slow down and cell phones are put away and weaving in and out stops and it's just accountability, right? I don't want something bad to happen for the bad I've done. Jesus actually has a different approach of accountability. He says, you, I am in charge. I am God. I'm not giving that up. And you are accountable to me. You are. But you're accountable to someone who is always good, always right, always present, 
And if you think about it, who would you rather be accountable to than someone like that? You would actually want his influence in your life. You would ask for him. What do you think? Is this the right way to go? I think I might just mess that up. What do you think? What's your perspective on that? It's a wonderful thing that we're told that Jesus in his prayer in John at the end of his life once again in the last week, he says, he tells us about how if we've said yes to Jesus, we're going to have the privilege of having his, the, the third part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, live inside of us. And he says, and here's what the Holy Spirit's going to do. He's going to convict you. I don't like that. Yeah, you do. He's going to convict you of righteousness, the right way to live. He's going to convict you of sin, the things that you and I do that break our relationship. And he's going to convict us of a coming judgment. What's that? That's a coming accountability. And it's a wonderful thing when you live in that environment. But again, I'll tell you, you and I will not desire to be accountable to someone who isn't good, isn't present, leaves, and isn't right all the time. I think what Jesus is trying to say, and he's about to prove it within just a few days of this story, of what being right all the time, good all the time, and uh, present all the time looks like. He's going to go to a cross. Is there any stronger definitive message that he could give us? He is in charge. And we are accountable to him. And that's where we find life to the full, the richest possible life. Is that your life? Is that your story? Is that how you know him? As you increasingly know him for who he really is, you'll delight that he's in charge and you'll delight that you're accountable to him. So Jesus, it's an amazing story that you tell. It's very interesting how you realize these religious leaders who you loved, they annoyed you at times, it appears, but you loved them and you so wanted them to understand, I believe, that they weren't actually the ones that were in charge. They weren't in control. You were in control. But how you loved them so much and were present with them all the time and were right about them, that you invited them into that kind of friendship with you through this story. May we be those kinds of people too. Give up control to you. And then let our lives be, and searching for it, what comes is we're accountable to you. It really turns out to be life to the full. But it's all determined in knowing who you are. So teach us about yourself, Jesus. Amen.